Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. We are living it right now. A brief from Mark McCormick. Global Head of Foreign Exchange and EM Strategy, TD uh, Securities. Mark, I want you to explain to our audience why a super strong dollar from 2012 and a super weak yen is disturbing. Well, I think what it does is it just shows the massive divergence you have between central banks. I think one of the things that you can unpack is there are certain currencies that care about growth. There are certain <laughs> currencies that care about commodities. There are certain currencies that care about different relative central bank functions. The thing that the yen cares a lot about is the 10-year point. To look at euro, euro cares about the two-year point of the curve more than, say, the 10-year. And if you take the combination of what we had, and this is one of the most important things going on in fact, is the relative terms of trade shift, Japan is also a massive importer of energy and other commodities. So you take the commodity story, you take the rate differential story, right. and now you take the aggressive bear steepening of the U.S. curves this summer, and you've got basically a trifecta of things that will weaken right. the yen quite considerably unless the BOJ does something. Well, to the trifecta, let's go to Mundell of Columbia. I mentioned this with Vice Chairman Clarity the other day. He will join us, folks, for our special Fed coverage. Look for that. Is that tomorrow? Yes. It's tomorrow. The Fed meeting is tomorrow. My people have just briefed me. And Mark, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at that. I want to echo what I talked to Professor Clarida about, which is something has to give here. When right. something gives, what is the instability our audiences should be worried about? Well, I think in the context of the end, what needs to give is, is the actual, the currency itself. As you mentioned, there is a very interesting policy mix where fiscal policy is actually quite favorable in forms of in terms of growth also inflation you see the boj is expecting higher inflation to kind of be a bit more sticky i think than markets are looking for and they've also basically said we don't have a cap anymore it's, it's, it can go above one percent so i think what they're trying to do is synchronize themselves a little bit which which has been u.s yields rising which would contain the weakness in the yen but this is not a policy mix that is coherent and it is no longer um, sustainable. So I think a big thing is what we're going to see is things are going to change. They will change abruptly. But I think the movement that we had overnight where they said there's no longer a 1% cap is actually quite a sig significant change, but it will take time for this to work through the market. So again, um, I'd say that the thing that needs to break is yields need to be higher, yen needs to be stronger. It's just going to take more time because we also need to see a peak in the U.S. yield story, which, again, is not even about the Fed anymore when we talk about the 10-year yield. It's more about supply and demand uh, for 10-year for bonds. 
This is a big mishmash. Do you have a sense of what the response mechanism from the Bank of Japan is, what the lines in the sand are, what they're sort of looking at? I mean, we were talking about some of the opacity that they put forward overnight. It's very tricky because I think obviously most central banks, it's very common language at this point. They care more about the currency movements. So the yen has not been as volatile. So, it's, you know, as you can see, we have not uh, the report came out this morning like they did not intervene last month. Uh, so I, I think I don't think there's a red line per se. I think they're all kind of doing what everyone in the market's doing. They're, they're very confused about the drivers They're very confused about the actual themes in the market. FX has become very challenged, I think, for many people. So I think the. The line in the sand is you're kind of thinking it's loose fiscal policy, loose monetary policy, weakest currency on record. It deviated from our longer term models by, you know, magnitudes. Um, you know, our longer term fair value model in dollar again is, is in 120s. So what you're kind of looking for is like the pressure points that will cause these things to break. And again, I think a big part of it is U.S. data needs to roll over. U.S. yields need to come down a little bit. And the BOJ, I think the one thing that we're very out of consensus on is we are looking for them to move out of NERP next year because of the wage pressure we're seeing in Japan. Uh, right, right around the Shinto wage negotiation, negotiations, we should see higher wages. Um, and as a result of you know essentially higher wages and higher nominal rates coming up, we should see real rates in Japan move substantially in their favor versus the, the U.S. next year. When you take a step back, there's a question of slowly or all at once. And you were saying it will be all at once at some point. How disruptive is this going to be at a time when so many people were talking about Japanese flows underpinning or basically suppressing yields globally and really keeping things a little bit more in sync? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big component because I think since the summer, since the BOJ let the, the you know kind of opened up the the, G, uh, the yield curve control. Um, the suppression they had on it. We have seen term premium rise across the world. We have seen the U.S. 10-year rise. So I do think that there is a, a blowback here that's happening slowly behind the scenes. Right. And again, I think a lot of people will make the point that the 10-year yield is now advanced above Fed expectations for 2024. It's above data surprises. It's above U.S. data trends. It's no longer reflecting right. the correlations we saw in July. So I do think that the BOJ and the fact that they're kind of moving out of it, obviously quantitative tightening has a component of this as well, but the BOJ right. does have the ability to kickstart uh, you know, rises in the U.S. 10 years as well. Bring up this board again on television and radio. I have to review you this. I didn't do this. Simon did this in the control room. He's been reading Michael Rosenberg on foreign exchange. Bring up that board again here. Yen, 151. Weak, weak, weak yen. Two-year yield, finally above zero. 10-year yield, almost 1%. Those are unimaginable numbers to pros. Mark, is this going to end stochastically? I talked to Martin Feldstein about this years ago. Like Looney, let's go to Toronto Dominion Bank. Looney goes up 138, you get up to 142, and it gets fixed. Is that where we're heading, where the system just fixes itself? No, I think the system's quite dynamic. I think that that's the interesting point. Like we we run a variations of lots of different types of tools and models and, and different things. We're trying to understand what's going on in the market. Uh, as I mentioned, the things that are driving a weaker yen are fundamentally based. They make they make a lot of sense. And again, the commodity story behind the scene is quite quite important, especially from the handover to last year, because what it does is it it eliminates the trade surplus and the trade surplus right. plus the current account plus the balance of payments. That is FX. You know, essentially everything we talk about every day is trying to think about how do we predict the balance of payments. So for the yen, I don't think any of this is stable. I think it's a right. very unstable equi equilibrium. Even the shorter term models that we look at that we use for, use for trading ideas, right. um, dollar yen should be at 145 
based on rate differentials and equities and risk and these kind of things. So it's even deviated now right. because, you know, markets are looking for a trend to trade and dollar yen is the only one that makes any sense right now. Three people just drove off the Garden State Parkway. There's your global Wall Street brief on foreign exchange. If you only understood half of that like I did, he's Mark McCormick of TD. Uh, securities. John Solstice has been listening to this and wants to weigh in on the Bunker Remo and beyond, and I'll let you get to that. But first, I want to start to say, how much uh, are you basically saying we've just have run out of time to get to that 4,900 mark? Yeah, it really, it really is. We we had to uh, to right size our expectations. We always suggest that to to investors uh, as they as they consider what happens when markets uh, are uh, are embroiled, uh, uh, so to speak. And what we've got to consider here is uh, the calendar is telling us that we're getting close to a year end. The average uh, rallies are, are 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 positive. You know, we get positive rallies after a dip like we've seen uh, traditionally or historically, but it's it's smaller amounts, and there's still lots of uncertainty that bears and uh, nervous investors uh, and and uh, and and those who are skeptics can use to uh, take more profits out of the fabulous rally that we're still living off from the lows of October 12th of last year. I feel like one strategist after another is basically coming on and saying, give investors a Prozac, because frankly, there is a lot of optimism. They're just not seeing it. How much can you really hinge on fundamentals if the sentiment is just so gloomy and prepared for the worst? Uh, you know, the, the real problem is, uh, I think that when you're in a Fed funds high cycle, uh, it takes a while before the uh, the marketplace gets a sense that the Fed is indeed not trying to destroy things and that the Fed might actually succeed in its goals. Uh, the Fed isn't uh, it, it isn't uh, in, infallible, but the Fed has a remarkably simple uh, uh, a mandate essentially, uh, you know, stable economic growth with maximum employment. Of course, what is it? Uh, a few weeks ago, I think it was the the daily quote on the Bloomberg was uh, Martin Scorsese, and it was something that like uh, simple is the best, but it's the hardest to achieve. Well, that that's what happens in a Fed funds hike cycle. But what happens is eventually. The marketplace, and you can see it related to uh, higher prices being accepted by right. consumers and business uh, in that, that you were just mentioning before. There's a sense, okay, we can deal with this now and we keep moving forward. The Fed has been so sensitive in applying its mandate that it hasn't knocked apart the resilience in the consumer, uh, in business, and the overall economy. Right. It's been extraordinary. Right. John, Michael McKee out with a brilliant idea on the Magnificent Seven. He's going back to the movies, looking at Yul Brenner, Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, Robert Vaughn, James Coburn, Horst Buchholz, and Brad Dexter. I mean, they were the Magnificent Seven. What do you do with a modern Magnificent Seven? Is Apple going to deliver here? And if you're going gloomy 4,400, do you sell your big tech? Well, I'm not gloomy of 400 at all. I'm just saying it's more realistic from here to the end of the year. Just wait until we put in our price target for next year. <laughs> but Go ahead. That'll be later on. Well, good. And no one's watching here. Yeah, come, come on. on. Compliance at Opco's not watching. Give me a number. Can you pop a 5,000 no, for next year? Can't do it. I got, I got compliance breeding down my back. But when we look at this, things yeah, are getting better. And we think... The, the, uh, we're going to see competition return 
in a lot of spaces. And competition is when all of a sudden you've got everybody is passing on the old higher prices, getting away with it. And then some some guy in business or gal discovers the idea of, well, maybe if I give up a little bit what I get in per unit costs, uh, maybe I can make it up big time in volume. And that'll happen across the sectors. But in the meantime, tech is is empowering everything. And we don't mean it uh, like in some kind of a moonshot, but in existence today, corporations are doing better navigating very tough environments, whether it was the financial crisis, whether it was the pandemic, post-pandemic, the supply chain uh, stabilization, uh, the the uh, get, getting away from one country's centricity yeah. in terms of the global supply chain. All of this technology is enabling a lot of things, both for the consumer as well as for business. And it's a, it's a dramatic change that combined with sensitivity by the Fed communication transparency uh, that we think is, you know, the Bernanke legacy that is still being practiced by Jerome Powell in his own way. Yeah. Uh, you know, has positive effect. I keep thinking the economy is not the stock market. And this is not necessarily a stock market that's representative of the broader economy. That really is maybe the Russell 2000 or the the, uh, the banking index, the regional banking index. Does your optimism bleed over to small caps to the uh, KBW index? Well, I'd say not necessarily to the K- KBW yet. We've got to wait for uh, for the, the economy to show uh, a greater sustainability going forward and not as many concerns in terms of commercial real estate and uh, subprime auto loans and things like that. But what we would say is when we when we look at this picture, overall things are getting better. It's being led by the large caps. But if we get to that point where we get to see the sustainability of the economic expansion of becoming uh, predominant in the picture, uh, you're going to want to own smalls and mid caps. And you probably want to consider, We, for instance, we're near uh, market cap agnostic in some ways because our goal is beyond. We're intermediate to longer term investors and the valuations are ridiculously low in many quality uh, indices of the small caps and mid caps. John Stolfus, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This should be a two-hour conversation. I can't say enough about the work of Dr. Miller. He is Aaron David Miller. He's a senior fellow of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. The shingle is from the University of Michigan, Definitive in International Relations. And he wrote a book in 2008 that was shockingly, shockingly prescient 15 years on about the mess we're in in the Eastern Mediterranean. Aaron David Miller, thank you so much for joining us this morning. When you wrote your masterpiece in 2008, did you expect the tragedy we're living now? Well, I expected, John, that an unresolved Israeli-Palestinian conflict driven by a proximity problem. Uh, Israelis and Palestinians are living on top of one another. And frankly, I think it was Mark Twain who said that proximity breeds contempt and children. I figured that uh, this conflict would endure. It would go through periods of accommodation, perhaps, as it did, but also periods of conflict that we've seen. But I think, I, I, I for one, I'll put myself at the top of the list, never anticipated the kind of trigger to this particular phase of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That is to say, what happened on October 7 um, with Hamas's brutal and savage attack and its uh, willful and intentional indiscriminate murder uh, of men, women, and children. I did not anticipate that. And clearly, in what probably one of the two greatest intelligence failures in the history of the state of Israel, neither did the Israelis. Aaron David Miller, Robert Gates writes a piercing essay in the new Foreign Affairs magazine. I read every word of it. The former defense secretary and head of CIA on a dysfunctional America, a dysfunctional superpower. You are someone that straddled the line, I would say, within the politics of Washington. What's Aaron David Miller's best practice now for the Biden administration? When it comes to this particular crisis, remember, we now have an arc of crisis. We have a major uh, crisis in the Middle East with the potential of escalating even further. If you end up with an Israeli Hezbollah war, you're going to see, uh, not to mention the prospects of Iranian involvement and direct confrontation between Israel and Iran, which would lead to spiking oil prices and plunging financial markets and even more uncertainty with respect to the global economy. You've got Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. You've got tensions in the Indo-Pacific. Look, I, I've long believed, um, you know, I'm a follower of Reinhold Niebuhr, proximate solutions to insoluble problems. This is a world that cannot be resolved. That is to say, I'm not sure there is one conflict right. out there you could identify that had, had a definitive or comprehensive solution. This is all about smart, smart management and a judicious and very balanced view of the projection of American power in areas that, in fact, we can we can and, and affect, but no, th this this is not a, a world to be redeemed or resolved. Right, it's one to be managed if we're lucky and smart. Aaron David Miller, Robert Kaplan's new book, The Loom of Time, is my book of the year. It's just a sprawling treatise from Morocco all the way over to Persia, indeed on to Afghanistan as well. And what permeates Kaplan's real politic is the basic idea that we have a human rights led foreign policy. 
Is our human rights-led foreign policy at risk, given what we see in the Eastern Mediterranean region? You know, Campbell's a really smart guy. Based on my experience, doing working for Republicans and Democrats over a 30-year period from uh, uh, Jimmy Carter to Bush 43, I don't think we have a human rights-based policy. In fact, human rights, the, the pro, uh, democracy of promotion, responsibility to protect, intervention to, to, to prevent uh, or even respond to mass killings from the Holocaust to Cambodia to Rwanda to Darfur to South Sudan to Syria. Where has the United States been with respect to the protection of human rights? I'm not saying that that right. is a role need to play and can play all the time, but I think human rights is is a factor, but based on my experience uh, from <clears throat> from Carter to Bush 43, it's right. rarely at the top of our agenda. There's been shades of isolationism there, even off of the shock of, of Jimmy Carter and the Iranian hostage crisis in, I believe, 79. What does our new isolationism look like? I'm not sure. Well, clearly, we're not there now. Uh, I mean, I think the America First notion, uh, although I think that largely would translate into putting America last, we've got to find the right balance, John, between doing too much in the world and not doing enough. One of my former bosses, Madeleine Albright, referred to the United States as the indispensable power, you know, and I remember what de Gaulle said about the cemeteries of France. They're filled with indispensable people. We can't be the indispensable power if indispensability means that we need to be everywhere to everyone all the time. Uh, we have a dysfunctional political system. That's the strength, by the way. Repairing that is critically important to our capacity to lead, uh, uh, not not by the uh, what it was Joe Biden says, not by the uh, example of our power, but by the power of our right. example. There is something to that. From where you sit in international relations, is our Pentagon properly funded? And specifically, does the Navy have enough ships and submarines? Probably no and no, uh, I suspect, even though there are some who argue that our defense budget is way, way out of whack. Uh, it'll be fascinating to try to see how we're going to resource going forward, because each of these problems I, refer, I referred to, what you're seeing in the Middle East right now, Russia's war against Ukraine, which is seems to be forever, and the prospects of a rising right. China in the Indo-Pacific, all of these things have to be properly resourced. And that's a concern that I have, given the nature uh, of our domestic politics. One final question here, and to circle back to your 2008 treaties, there is a much too promised land. What should we advocate to Israel and the Palestinians in this November? You know, a lot of people I respect, John, believe that the so-called two-state solution has gone the way of the dodo. Um, I understand the argument, but frankly, it's the least bad solution to this conflict. Israelis and Palestinians need to separate from one another through negotiations. There's no precedent that I can think of, of two, two national movements, one a state, a non-state actor seeking to become a movement, um, living happily ever after under one roof. Uh, it's Cyprus, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq. I mean, the beat goes on. So it's not, it's just a hop, skip and a jump to understanding that if in fact you can have anything resembling a conflict ending solution, I'm choosing my words very carefully here, 
you really do need to have separation through negotiation, maybe into a confederation at some point, but you need to satisfy the political, territorial, emotional, psychological, and religious underpinnings of this conflict. The only thing that does that, in my judgment, is to separate through negotiation, state of Israel living peacefully um, next door to a Palestinian polity. That, to me, is the only way to even begin to think about fixing. Aaron David Miller, thank you so much for the brief. Hugely valuable with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Stephen Stanley joins us uh, right now with Santander U.S. Capital Markets. You are acclaimed for analysis of GDP. How does the bond market affect your analysis? You know, I think the Fed is overstating the uh, the importance of this little backup in, uh, in, in bond yields that we've seen over the last month. Um, uh, as we talked about the last time I was here, I, I see it maybe as a little bit more of an excuse than a than a reason. Um, I think they they wanted to hold off, and uh, that provided them with a convenient reason. Financial conditions have tightened a little bit, but look, um, you know, as you got, you all discussed, the economy is is still rolling at this point. So I think it's wishful thinking that the last twenty or thirty basis points on the on the bond yield is going to roll the economy okay, but over. The, 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 I'll, I'll go with this easy easy question here. It's a cliche, but unfortunately, it, it's apt right now. Are they fighting the last war? I think it's too soon to say that because, um, you know, the idea, I, I assume what you're suggesting is, well, inflation's already licked. Um, well, Dominic Constant in Missoula is calling it super restrictive. I got people saying the 5% reality lay on the bond market is a 7% uh, reality in the economy as well. Are they, are they working now? Are they go to the meeting tomorrow in a restrictive milieu? I, I think policy is restrictive, but is it restrictive enough? I mean, until the economy actually slows down, until inflation really uh, comes off, it's it's hard to say that. And so I think that's why that at a minimum they're certainly going to want to keep their options open. Um, you know, they've they've signaled another pause, but Powell has certainly kept the door open to further hikes. So I'm going to throw this question at you, what I was asking before, which is how long can the U.S. continue surprising to the upside with economic data and showing momentum at the same time that you see Europe running into recession, Canada coming out, recession, around the world, a lot of pain? Uh, maybe not to be overly glib, but basically forever, because the U.S. is a domestically driven economy. And I think economists and, and particularly the Fed have systematically over the years overestimated the importance of the global economy for the U.S. economy. We're, you know, what, between 10 and 15 percent of our economy is trade, whereas for most of the other major economies, it's 30, 40 percent. Okay, I'll challenge that in one way. Okay. And this is something that a lot of people have been talking about, and I would love for you to push back if this is the case. People say that the international transmission, tra transmission mechanism is the U.S. yield, is how many international buyers are going to be coming in and picking up treasuries at a time where the Bank of Japan is not going to be buying, where you're going to have, uh, or not going to be uh, really pushing investors out of that nation's asset market, where you have uh, certainly uh, around the world yields going higher and China not buying. How much... Does supply change that narrative and create more of an international transmission mechanism than ever before? Yeah, that, that's an interesting angle, actually. Um, I, I think the root of the problem there, of course, is the fact that we're, uh, that we're running such large deficits. Uh, if, if we had a smaller deficit, then this wouldn't be so much of a problem. But the fact that the <clears throat> Treasury has to borrow an extra two, two and a half trillion dollars a year 
Um, right. They need, they need uh, demand anywhere they can get it. So that, that actually does bring a good point, which is that the it feels like the international community has pulled back a little bit for various reasons. And I think, you know, that's that's part of it, a, right. a piece of why yields have backed up recently. Well, Mike McKee summarizes for us. We've heard this twice today on surveillance. Jill Moak of AXA and Stephen Stanley of Santander agree. The United States is a relatively closed economy. Are we an economy of fiscal stimulus, thinking of refunding and all the other debates, versus Europe in austerity stimulus? I mean, are, are we living a fiscal stimulus that makes us different? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, we, as Chris says, we're, uh, as Steve says, we're, we're a sort of closed economy. Uh, we don't have to worry necessarily about what's happening in Europe as much as Europe has to worry about what's happening in the United States and China, uh, their biggest trading partner. And so mm -hmm. uh, we can stimulate the economy and we can run deficits for a lot longer. Nobody knows exactly right. how high or how long, but well. it, it doesn't have the same kind of effect. Uh, interesting to note where we are with yields these days is where we were in the 1990s when we were growing at 4.5% a year. So can we live with this? Uh, I mean, for now, uh, we can. Right. Stephen Stanley with us. So I'm not going to go higher for longer, but just pick one of them. Are we going to go higher or are we going to go longer? Well, I think the more important thing is the longer part. Um, you. They, you know, they may go one more time, uh, but we're pretty close to the end. So I, I don't think the higher part is, is the more important of the two right now. I think right. the, more issue, the more important issue is how long are they going to stay um, Can at the this American level. economy equilibrate through a higher nominal and real rate, or almost equicalibrate, I would almost I, say. Yes, I think we're in the process of that. I, I think that, in my mind, the neutral rate is you know anywhere from 50 to 100 basis points higher than it was before COVID. So give me a 10-year real rate, which is going to be a run rate. Um, I, I think it's probably you know one to one and a half percent, something like that. Okay. When we look right now at the data that we've getting this week, you said that the Fed seems to be looking for an excuse, and it's not really that they're so concerned about what you call this little backup in yields. So what data could make it difficult for them to use the backup in yields as some sort of an excuse? Well, boy, we're really testing that, right? Because <laughs> since the September meeting, we've had a blowout payroll number, a high inflation number, stronger than expected consumer spending, and now we get a, a, a firm wage number. So the, you know, you're pretty much a clean sweep, and yet they're clearly going to pause. So um, I think it's going to have to be not so much a particular data point, but a duration of a stretch of, of good data. If we continue to see good data for another month or two, then, I mean, it just becomes increasingly compelling. So tomorrow, based on what they say and based on the economic data, what are the chances, from your view, that they've got to go significantly further than currently markets are pricing? Yeah, so significantly further is, is, is a really important part of that question. Because as I said, I mean, right. my base case, I have one more hike, but that's I mean, you know, whether they do one more or not, it's not that important. But there is a scenario where inflation reaccelerates and they end up having to go multiple times. That's the, I think right. that's the scenario that you might have in mind. I, I mean, to me, that's the biggest risk fact. I see that as a bigger risk than the risk that the economy slides into recession and they end up easing much sooner than people expect. Um, but it, but it's, at this point, it's, for me, it's a risk scenario, not a base case. Are you, is it true you're going for Halloween, you're going as dot plot? Um, that that's a rumor. I, I can't confirm or deny you got, that. You had bullard up at the tippy top of your head. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. I have a lot of room on my head for, for dots. <laughs> so do some of us. Is 
Uh, well, also, John Farrell going as Yul Brenner. I don't know if you knew that. One of the <laughs> oh, magnificent yeah. seven. I, mean, yeah. well, I look forward John, to seeing good that Good to hear costume. from you, John. It was good to hear. Stephen Stanley uh, with his chief U.S. economist at Santander. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Emily Rowland this morning from Boston here on a Halloween. What's your biggest fear out there besides trick-or-treating? What's your biggest fear, Emily, in this market? My biggest fear is that we're actually in a scary movie right now, but it's not over yet. You know, you think about the villain kind of being wounded but still alive, and the villain is higher borrowing costs in the wake of the Fed raising interest rates in the shortest amount of time and to the greatest extent in several decades here. And we really haven't felt the sting from that as far as consumers pulling back, you know, as far as earnings getting hurt by that, profit margins getting crushed. So everything's fine right now. We're sort of running to the safe part of the house as we're getting chased by this villain. But we need to remember that the movie simply isn't over yet. Oh, my God, Emily. I'm just thinking about you at the sleepover with a bunch of 11-year-olds saying it's a scary house. <laughs> the Bond villain is coming to get you. At some point, I'm wondering, Emily, how much we're looking at a scenario where yields have kind of reached a peak and that really the uncertainty lies. And I keep harping on this, but it lies with the deficit financing and what we get tomorrow from uh, the Treasury Department. What we got yesterday actually underwhelmed with the amount that the U.S. would have to borrow yeah. in the third quarter. And arguably, that's what's leading yields lower this morning. Yeah, certainly fears around supply have been a key to the narrative around rising bond yields. But it's not like we woke up one morning over the last few weeks and all of a sudden found out that the Treasury was going to have to issue more debt. That's been a known issue. So for us, that's not really the primary reason that bond yields have picked up. It's been just this unrelenting strength in the economic data in the U.S. And certainly fiscal spending has played a role in that. Excess savings right. have played a role in that in 2020 20 and 2021. Um, but really, it's been the strength of the data. There's something really, really unusual happening in the bond market right now. One, we're facing down potentially the third consecutive year of negative returns for high quality bonds. That's never happened before in history. We're also looking at an environment where 
if the Fed was done in July, and we can talk about that, it's really unusual to see the 10-year Treasury yield continuing to rise. Typically, what happens is that the 10-year peaks right around the same time or just before the Fed pauses. Very unusual. And then finally, the elusive bear steepener. Another very uh, notable dynamic here that is not uh, consistent with what we've seen in recent history. So our view is that we could be getting close here to the peak in yields. This doesn't sound like a scary story, actually, uh, arguably, and as uh, Gina Martin-Adams yesterday was saying, this really speaks to uh, a pain trade of more momentum, of gains, of a rally in risk assets, because if yields are rising because of growth, isn't that a good and beautiful thing? Yeah, I mean, I think our standards for growth have seemed to be shifted a little bit. Yes, there's a lot of strength in the labor market, uh, but we all know that that's lagging data and those cracks are starting to form. I think this week's going to be really critical in terms of the jobs report on Friday, initial <coughs> claims, which have stayed stubbornly low. We've got to remember that yeah. that data is subject to heavy revisions and we're seeing a lot of cracks and the consumer story starting to emerge. There's a lot of headwinds right. out there. The resumption of student loan payments, credit card interest rates at 25% right now, auto loans at 7%, mortgage okay. rates over 8%. That's a challenge. How do you get out 36 months? You're going to tell me part of a carefully managed portfolio is to look out three years, five years, <laughs> 10 years, maybe when the Red Sox go above 500 again. Emily, the basic Ouch. idea here is people are scared stiff. How much cash at 5x% percent should they own versus having the courage to reach out 36 months? Yeah, I think the, the critical, the scary part, I guess, about being in cash right now is that you're subject to significant reinvestment risk. Our view is that the normal relationship with the economic cycle and bond yields remarries as we head into this economic contraction into next year. And in that environment, you want to move out the curve and just really be able to capture the 5 6% income that you're seeing in high-quality bonds right now. I know we've been talking about this for a while. There's been these significant odd dis locations in the bond market. But if you're in cash right now, you might not get that yield next year. We have an opportunity to, again, to lock that income mm -hmm. stream in for years. And I think we're going to look back on this as quite an incredible opportunity to unlock right. the value in bonds. Thank you, Emily Rowland, John Hancock Investment Management, Boston. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. 
So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.